We'll begin reading at verse 28 and read through verse 3 of chapter 19. So Second Chronicles uh, 18, verse 28. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of the chariots who were with him, saying, Fight with no one, small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So it was, when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, It is the king of Israel. Therefore they surrounded him to attack. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. For so it was, when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. The battle increased that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening, and about the time of sunset. He died. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, and that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. This morning we read uh, those last recorded words of uh, Micaiah as uh, he was being taken back into custody. He cried out, uh, take heed all you people. He warned Ahab and uh, the prophets and, uh, and Jehoshaphat of uh, what they were facing as they went to battle contrary to the word of the Lord. And uh, he faithfully left this testimony on record as a true prophet of the Lord. Over a hundred uh, years from this point, there would be another prophet whose name closely resembles that of Micaiah. His name is Micah. And uh, it makes you wonder if this, this hero and his legacy influenced his parents uh, to name their son after this faithful prophet. It's also interesting that his prophecy begins with the word, Take heed, all you people. He spoke the word of the Lord. He's continuing that tradition of uh, inspired prophecy by the Lord's commission, giving a faithful word, exposing the reality of sin and calling people to faith in the Lord. Micaiah was returned to state custody after speaking God's word of judgment. That word that Ahab would fall at Ramoth Gilead, as we read in verse 25. Uh, and he knew that he declared the truth. And uh, nothing would deter him from saying it. And uh, he staked his prophetic ministry on the truth of his word. When uh, Zedekiah mocked him, uh, and when he was uh, incarcerated again by the king's command... Until he returned in peace, we heard Micaiah say, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. 
In effect, he's saying, if you come back alive, I'm a false prophet. He was confident that he spoke the truth of God. And so he did. Let God be true and all men liars. We might say that's a theme that, that runs through scripture. And it's a theme that is actually impressed upon us again and again with vivid detail in the historical narratives of the prophets. And that's one reason why reading the Old Testament is so important. That's one reason by reading uh, the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is uh, so fascinating and so important in impressing upon us the authority of God's word. We have uh, these exhilarating contests again and again between the truth of God and the lies of men, uh, between uh, true prophets like Micaiah and Elijah, uh, men who often stood alone, and men like Zedekiah, and those 400 liars along with him. And God's word always wins. Sometimes it appears against all odds. And we see that played out before us in our text. And along with it, we see God's mercy and God's power. Demonstrated in, in extricating, delivering Jehoshaphat from this mess that he had gotten himself into by uh, friendship with the enemies of God. And so we're continuing with the theme of this morning, the Lord protects his compromised king as he fulfills his word. And we're going to consider, first of all, an inescapable sovereign uh, judgment. Sovereign children, you understand that that word sovereign refers to God in his absolute rule as the king of kings, as the ruler of nations who fulfills his will without fail in the details of his government of this world and of all things. Ahab must have felt uneasy about Micaiah's message. And it's not uncommon at all for people to resist and to reject the word of God, to reject it with their words, to reject it uh, with their desires, to reject it with their will, and still feel its weight, and still fear that it might in fact be true. We also see then the pathetic effort that Ahab made to avoid it. In going to battle, he disguised himself. He broke the customary uh, rule of kings going before their troops as kings leading them into battle. Rather, he dresses up like a common soldier so that he won't be detected, as if he can hide himself from the enemy, as if he can hide himself from the word of God. When you think about it, that must have been a great morale booster, right, for his troops. Where's the king? Well, he's hidden away, disguised as a common soldier. Why? Well, apparently he's a little bit afraid that the word of God may in fact come true. He's trying to avoid it. It's also astounding, isn't it, that Jehoshaphat went along with this, that he went into battle with Ahab. And he went into battle, as we've seen, despite uh, his, his respect for the word of God, a genuine respect that seems to have really faltered and failed in terms of its application here. But despite the fact that he uh, had respected God's word and despite the fact that he had such a clear word of God, speaking directly into this these circumstances, this situation in which he found himself. And we see a man who shows himself to be very gullible under the, the pressure of Ahab's 
influence here. I mean, just imagine Ahab to his brother king. Here, you dress up like a king and uh, so that they'll come after you instead of me. You dress up in your robes so that you're the target and not me. It's astounding that Jehoshaphat goes along with it. Is this friendship? Is this love? Perhaps Jehoshaphat had a kind of love for Ahab, a love that sought his well-being, that hoped the best for him. Was that love mutual? Is it ever mutual between, between Christians and unbelievers? How often do Christians find by bitter, painful disappointment that those who they depended on, those who they thought loved them, in fact betrayed them and did great harm to them, now, we recognize that there is a kind of love that unbelievers display amongst themselves and towards Christians, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful that even in mixed marriages, sometimes there is a kind of uh, respect and, and genuine affection that unbelievers have for their spouses, and they show it in very real ways. But still, we ask the question, do they love them truly? Do they love them spiritually? Do they care for their deepest interests? Do they care for their souls? Do they pray for them? No, they do not. They don't pray for themselves. If they were spiritually awake enough to pray for their unbelieving friends or loved ones, well, that would be an evidence of genuine faith that values spiritual things. There's often bitter disappointment that results from friendship with the world in the form of betrayal and disloyalty or indifference. Indifference to what is most important. Ask, ask people who have been converted out of the world. Ask what kind of treatment they may get from their former friends. If they don't join with them in their lifestyle, the relationship's pretty much over, generally. Joshua wasn't loved, but he was rather appears under a kind of spell, a, a kind of spell of peer pressure, you might say. You know, we can't get inside of Jehoshaphat's uh, head. And his thinking. But we can imagine it, can't we? You can imagine that Jehoshaphat feels at this point that he's, that he's in so deep that there's just, there's just really no, no way out of this. And so he's just going to power through it despite all his misgivings. He's just going to go and just somehow hope for the best. Have you ever been in that kind of a situation? What an awful place to be. Has God gotten you out of those kinds of situations in the past? He has me, not by myself. It's his work. It's his grace. But there is no escape from God's arrow once, uh, once that arrow leaves his hand, so to speak. And I know I'm using imagery that is taken from this random shot that this Syrian took. He drew a bow at venture, like shooting an arrow into the air, perhaps in the general direction of, uh, the Israeli army. And that arrow reaches a mark that he could never imagine in between the joints of Ahab's heart, uh, armor. Psalm 139 is such a wonderful, comforting passage. You're familiar with the psalm. It speaks of God's omniscience, that God knows everything. He knows every word we speak before we speak it. He knows our thoughts afar off. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand 
shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are, are both alike to you. It's a wonderful comfort to believers. It can be unsettling, but it's a wonderful comfort to know that this God who knows us perfectly, absolutely, inescapably, is our God in covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is for us. Yeah, the knowledge of God's absolute knowledge sometimes may be unsettling. It seems to be a bit unsettling even for the psalmist as he is aware of the fact that God has access to his inmost heart and knows everything about him. And he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's an honesty, a humility, and comfort before an omniscient God. But not so for the unbelieving. In fact, in the context of this psalm, we hear the weight of those words spoken. Surely you will slay the wicked, because God sees the wicked. All their actions, all their thoughts, he hears all their words. And without repentance and reconciliation, they cannot escape him. He sees through every disguise. He sees through every pretense. There's no darkness that that hides from him. God has the, the perfect night vision, if you will. And he's everywhere present. He's just as close to Jehoshaphat's chariot as he is to Ahab's chariot. And it's a terrible thing to be in the crosshairs of the Almighty. And he was in the crosshairs of the Almighty when that random soldier fired that random arrow. It was aimed at a preordained target that God had fixed. And you know that words of judgment had been piling up against Ahab for a long time. There is the word of Micah here in this passage, but before that there is there is an unnamed uh, prophet that's uh, referred to in 1 Kings 21. After Ahab let Ben-Hadad go, after God had delivered him into Ben Ahab's hand in order to execute God's judgment against him, Ahab let him go. And then an unnamed prophet confronted him. And we're told in uh, 1 Kings 20, verse 42, this unknown prophet said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life your people for his people. Notice number one. And then, of course, there is perhaps the more familiar account of Elijah's message to Ahab in chapter 22. And this is in the context of Ahab's murder of Naboth and his theft of his vineyard because it was next to the palace and Ahab wanted it for himself. And he was incited by his wicked wife Jezebel to frame Naboth and have him murdered so that he could enter into his heritage and take it for himself. And Elijah met him in Naboth's vineyard, and he confronted him. And he said to Ahab, Have you murdered and also taken possession? Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Pretty graphic, pretty categorical, unmistakable notice of death and judgment that awaits him. 
It's interesting that Ahab had a kind of respect for the word of the Lord himself at that point in the sense that he humbled himself. And the disaster and judgment that God pronounced on his whole household was delayed until after he was dead. But the word of judgment against him wasn't withdrawn. And that's the word specifically that was fulfilled in the account of Ahab's death. We read it in verse 34, The battle increased that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot, facing the Syrians until evening. There's a kind of courage still evident in this dying king, facing the enemy. But about the time of sunset, he died. Actually, the, the account in Kings gives us more detail. In chapter 22, it says, Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. The battle increased that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. The blood ran out of the wound onto the floor of the chariot. Then as the sun was going down, a shout went throughout the army, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. Yeah, that word of Micaiah is literally fulfilled. The dispersion of this army. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. Then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed. Those dogs lapped up that blood flavored water in that pool that apparently was used for the cleansing of these ritual harlots that were a part of Ahab's idolatrous worship. The judgment of God meeting him in a context that exposes the reality of his idolatry and uncleanness, a prophecy that's literally fulfilled as the dogs licked his blood. God's word of judgment will overtake the wicked. It's, it's relentless in its pursuit. There are other passages that make this clear. In the prophecy of I, I, or of Amos, uh, we, we have, uh, such, such language as that of chapter nine and verses three and following. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. There is no escaping God for those who are at enmity with him. God determines when. God determines how. All means are at his disposal. Whether they die in their beds in peace at an old age, or die in a violent altercation or accident, and that's just the end of their life on earth to face his eternal judgment and wrath. See, it's futile to find our own hiding place from judgment. Ahab tried to do that. Uh, this false prophet would hide in fear and shame when God's word proved to be true. There's another, another uh, prophetic revelation of that futile effort given to us in the book of Revelation. But there it doesn't concern just a few select individuals, but it describes a vast multitude of the kings of the earth and great men and rich men and commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's a preview 
of the coming judgment when the Lord returns in flaming vengeance, taking vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel and who do not know God. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? If you're running from God tonight, if you're resisting his word, if you're living with guilt, please stop. Please stop. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the only hiding place that is secure, where you will be safe. The only way of escape. Change directions before it's too late. And 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 go to that one who truly is a secure hiding place. He's described also in, in the prophecy of, of Isaiah, where it says a king will reign in righteousness, princes will rule with justice, a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in the weary land. And whatever temporary uh limited fulfillment that had historically ultimately that's a prophecy concerning the lord jesus christ huh? isn't that what we sing brothers and sisters rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure save from wrath i'm using an, an older i think it's the original version of that uh, hymn, save from wrath and make me pure. And those who take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ with all their fears and all their guilt, all their compromises, they find refuge, forgiveness, acceptance, new life. We turn to consider, finally, a gracious, humbling deliverance that's recorded before us in this passage. The Lord helped him. That's the explanation for Jehoshaphat's escape. The leaders of Ahab's chariots were charged with uh, focusing on the king. Like as if they're to ignore everyone else. Their one target is the king of Israel. They, they failed to get him, didn't they? God didn't need them to take him out. But when they saw Jehoshaphat, they thought that was the king of Israel, just like Ahab hoped. And so they surrounded him, and Joshua cried out. And the text here in Chronicles is very, very clear as to what happened. The Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. And then we're told that uh, the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, but that really uh, is simply uh, the consequence of the Lord doing something. The Lord opened their eyes. The Lord made it manifested. But in any case, they recognized that it was not Ahab, and they turned back from pursuing him. The God who directs an arrow for a mortal wound of Ahab diverts all these chariots and captains surrounding Jehoshaphat. We get ourselves into troubles that only God can get us out of. And if that's you, if that's you tonight, I know it's very possible for people who come to church may, in fact, in their private or personal lives, be so entangled in such a mess that they cannot imagine, they can't see how they can really get themselves out of it. So they stay there. And they don't do what Jehoshaphat did. He cried out to the Lord in his helplessness, his desperation, in his need. 
And the Lord came to his help and delivered him. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. And then we need to listen to God's lesson in our deliverance. We're told that Jehoshaphat turned, returned home safely, and that's because of God's grace, isn't it? Uh, but God's grace to him went beyond that. Jehoshaphat also had to be humbled, and God had just the right instrument to do it. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him. You may not know Jehu, but uh, it's possible that you remember the name Hanani. Because we heard about this man. We heard about Jehu's dad. We heard about him in connection with Asa. When Asa sought help through a confederacy with Assyrians and failed to trust in the Lord, God sent Hanani to him and rebuked him for his lack of faith. God's eyes go true and throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are upright with him. God could have delivered Israel or uh, Judah from Israel. Asa didn't have to rely upon the Syrians. And this faithful prophet rebuked the king. And the king got angry. And the king put him in prison. That's where you find prophets. So often in the scripture. In prison. That's where Micaiah was. That's where Jeremiah would go. That's where the greatest prophet of all would end up. In prison. His head would be cut off. In prison. For faithfully confronting a king with his sin of adultery. John the Baptist. And Jehu thought to himself, Wow, look what my dad got for being faithful. I'm not going to do that. No, no, no. Jehu went and confronted the next king in line. And rebuked him severely. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. He went out to meet him. Not to congratulate him. Or even thank God with him for his deliverance. But to rebuke him with these hard words. Jehu, like his father, was more concerned to speak for God with courage than please the king. And so he spoke these words. He had a hard message for him. And we're taught in this passage there is, that there is such a thing as God's fatherly anger and discipline for his children. The wrath of the Lord is upon you. And Jehoshaphat was made to feel it. He was made to feel it even in this sharp language from God, right? This was God's word. Sometimes we need to feel it that way. Sometimes we need to know that God is rebuking us and we feel his displeasure so that we might repent and turn to him afresh. In fact, sometimes we need to even feel it in the sad consequences of our own ways of compromise with the world. And these consequences can be, can be hard, but they're meant to be humbling. And it seems to have served its purpose with Jehoshaphat, because the next thing we read of Jehoshaphat is that he's going about caring for the people. He is going about seeking to secure the spiritual well-being, not only of those from Judah, but even those from Ephraim, even those of Israel. 
He dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. He continued to be a godly king who cared for these people. And God doesn't ignore or deny his work of grace in his own. God is not unjust uh, to deny uh, the good things that he works in his people. And that was also a part of Jehu's message to Jehoshaphat when he said, Nevertheless, good things are found in you, and that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. Jehoshaphat had done good. By grace, he had shown a concern for the pure worship of God. And Jehoshaphat, by the grace of God, had a heart to seek the Lord. And he is hearing from the Lord the assurance of the fact that God knows that too. God knows when people try to hide from him, but God knows when people love him and trust in him. And see, Jehoshaphat heard that, as it were, directly from the mouth of the Lord. I know that you have a heart to seek me. And you know what I think, brothers and sisters? I think that was probably a lot more effective in moving him to repentance than the rebuke, right? For a gracious heart, yes, to face God's displeasure and discipline is something that he uses to bring us to repentance. But for a gracious heart, there's nothing that softens us more than the reminder of God's mercy and love for us, undeserved. And that's what motivates us to try to do better and to consecrate ourselves to him more. That stirs love. Well, that may that gift of God's grace to us move us uh, to grow in grace and consecration to our God and King. Amen.